0: Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm
1: Angel Eduardo.
0: We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below.
0: Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from very shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Dr. Anika Prather. Dr. Prather teaches in the Classics Department at Howard University, and is the founder of The Living Water School, a unique Christian school for independent learners based on the educational philosophies of classical education and the Sudbury model. Her research focuses on building literacy with African-American students through engagement in the books of the canon. In this episode, we discuss her background as a thinker and educator, the difference between the Western canon and the classics, how works of literature belong to everyone regardless of race, her alternative approach to decolonizing curricula, why students have trouble appreciating and engaging with the classics, W.E.B. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington, and the importance of telling stories from a human perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dr. Anika Prather.
1: Anika Prather, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad we could finally make this happen
1: yeah, yeah it's there was a little bit of a uh, scheduling tag going on <laughs> back and forth, but I'm glad yes. we made it work yes um so i I'm trying to remember how how I first heard of you. It was definitely on twitter, but i can't I can't remember if it was via a a podcast or just your posts, and somehow okay. we got connected yes. but you were on um you were on a friend's podcast called where we Go next yes. Uh, and I heard that and I thought to myself, we have to talk to her Aww. and we have to get her connected with fair because she is so fair minded. You are, uh, yeah. I mean, you are amazing. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. everyone who's met you so far agrees. Not everyone. Okay. Well, everyone who's <laughs> met you so far around here, uh, in the fair, in the fair, uh, in the fair community. Know, ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. The fair ecosystem or however we want to call it. Yes. Um, but. But, you know, I think you are criminally under-recognized. Under so, oh. you know, I think, I think many of our listeners and viewers will probably be hearing about you for the first time. So why don't you give us a little bit of an intro? Who are you? What do you do? Okay. And what's important to you about what you're doing?
2: I am Anika Prather. I, first and foremost, am a wife and mom of three young kids. I'm also a professor at Howard University. I'm a lecturer there in the English department where I teach humanities one and two, where I teach kids about the intersection of um, the Black narrative with the story of the West. And then I also founded a school back seven years ago called the Living Water School. And it's from K through 12. It's a hybrid school. So it's online online. And in person, but the in person part is optional. So, core of the activities and lessons are online. So, we have students in other states as well. And its purpose is um, it's classical ish, but it also does a lot with that's why I think Fair and I connect so well just our equality. And so, we don't just study Black history or the West, we study everyone and just try to see how we're all connected, how all of our stories are important. And the students have a lot of freedom to choose their path. And then I recently am possibly going to take on another position at another university that I'll share later, <laughs> which will give me an opportunity. though. I wanted, I'm sharing it here without mentioning the name because um, it's going to allow me to work with school systems, public and private and charter, just to oh, analyze the curriculum that they use and, and hopefully have some type of say into how fair and how equitable their curriculum is and how well it tells the story of history. And um, so I'm really excited about that, that opportunity. And so, uh, yeah, that's basically me in a nutshell. And I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian as well.
0: Dr. Prather. Um, you know, it strikes me as your work right now, which strikes me as really, just really refreshing, um, really interesting as well, because it, it seems that the, the dominant narrative of our, of our time is, is this charge against uh, classical education. Um, that it is rooted too much in in, in this Western tradition and that because of that, it marginalizes or excludes. It excludes a lot of of other people, minorities around the world. I mean, if you you look at the great books, um, someone did this calculation. Out of 151 authors, I think majority of them, I mean, all of them are are, are Western and and 50 are English or American. Yes. Do you agree with, with that this in and of itself is a problem yeah, I, I,
2: I want to say that, um, especially when you talk about great books, and I want to just give a definition here, separating the canon or great books from classics. Classics, which covers the books and art and culture of ancient Greece and Rome, very different from great books. People sometimes mix them. Mm-hmm.
0: So I just did, we, yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I, no, but and I don't know if you did. I think you were talking about the canon, which I want to just make sure those who are listening, though, understand that the classics are part of it the great books canon. But one thing which is why I kind of favor classics is because even though the authors themselves are from Greek and Roman ancestry, they very openly talk about ancient African civilizations. And that's really important because the classics do provide a source of understanding the world of ancient Africa. Not the only source, but definitely a gateway. And I found that there are many of the early enslaved people were able to find some connection to their homeland through reading classics such as Frederick Douglass or Phyllis Wheatley. And so that's really important that we understand classics to be that and not mix it up with a more man-made finagling of what books are great. And so Mm -hmm. my issue is not with classics and I don't have a big issue with great books, except that this is this. If we think about classics or these books that we call great books in a different way, we will find that they are valuable, they're important, they share wonderful stories, wonderful insight into our humanity. But so many diverse people groups have connected to them. And so this is where the problem is. Number one, that when we share the canon or great books, we don't talk about that. We talk about it as if it only belongs to a certain people group. It is only about a certain people group. But we have so many people from diverse backgrounds that have come to great books for inspiration. The other piece that we don't do is we kind of break a rule that the canon says. The canon says, it becomes a canon because all of the authors and writers and thinkers in the canon had a great conversation around the early ancient texts, wrote their thoughts on that, their their thoughts on it, and wrote these other books that are kind of feeding back I always call classics like the seed and everything is kind of sprouting from classics and all of the authors are exchanging ideas based on their thoughts on Socrates or Aristotle or so on and so forth the thing about the problem lies is that's a great rule that's a great rule to to say this is this is a body of study that we have and that's okay to have a body of study that doesn't include everyone okay because The problem is that if the rule is everyone who engages in this conversation should be a part of the canon, then we need to be including diverse voices who have had this conversation with the canon through their writing. Mm -hmm. So people who exclude voices of color, women, and others are breaking the rule of the canon. Mm -hmm. And so to be true to what we say, oh, this is just, you know, this body of knowledge that we're sharing this great conversation that has been shared over centuries, well, then Du Bois was having I mean, most Black activists were having that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so that is the problem. I don't know if I have a problem with the concepts at all because people do Italian studies, they do Asian studies, they do African and African-American studies. There's ethnic studies and Jewish studies. You know, there's studies around ethnicity, a specific ethnicity. The beautiful thing that I find with great books is we all can find ourselves there. Like we, we can tell stories of why did Gandhi read these books? Why did many of the Black Panther read these books? Why did Paulo Freire read these books or Augusto Boal read these books? These are all practitioners of finding inspiration in the canon to create some work that changed humanity. And so I think that would make the canon much more meaningful. And that's not hard to do. Like you can really pick any great philosopher, activist, thinker, world changer, history maker. And if you read back, like I have this thing where I'll I'll ask myself, oh, they're powerful. What do they read? And if I go back and read their bio and their schooling, I mean, I found out recently that Bell Hooks has a whole essay on teaching about why it's important to read the works of the canon. Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so, you know, so we need to, be open-minded to that, and I think people are resisting that.
1: I'm curious what Bell Hooks had to say. What? Why? Why did she well, say it's important to read? She,
2: well, she said her father did. He wasn't an educated man, and mm. she. But their house included the works of the canon growing up, so she would read them. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I knew I was going to say that so that I could have the book so I can read the passage. <laughs> but um, and maybe I'll find it and send it to you all. You can somehow read it in the intro. Order. But, but Bell Hooks talked about how reading these works actually helped her have a broader worldview so she could be more powerful to speak to all the needs of humanity. And, wow. and, 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 and Martin Luther King says it in his autobiography that many of the works of the canon formed the basis for his philosophy of the civil rights movement. Why is that? Because these books were as tainted and scarred by, I call the Jim Crow plague <laughs> and slavery, even though many of some of them in the great books canon may have been written thereafter they weren't as tainted by it as we see now. And so they were really just writing to tell a human story that anyone could relate to. Was, they no. weren't writing in explicit terms of, this is only for white people, this is only for black people. Or, yeah. you know, it was, it was just telling a person's thoughts and feelings of that
0: time. Mm. But isn't it because that oh. this, fra- this framing is kind of new right now? This modern framing of, of, of trying to parse or balkanize our intellectual or cultural inheritance and say, this doesn't belong to you. Mm. This belongs to you. I, I'm, mm. I'm just, I'm just reminded of a, a a keynote speech. I saw Glenn Lowry give where he opens up and says, you know, I am yeah. a man of the West. And he says, Newton is mine. Maxwell is mine. Tolstoy is mine. And it was oh, a very powerful, very powerful. Op- like mm. he opens the speech like this. And and it seems like this framing today is is a little lost. We've we've really deviated from that.
2: And the Why thing about it is we can all say that speech, though. Like, it's very easy to say, I can say Maxwell yeah. is mine. Tolstoy is mine, <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. all of these authors are mine. They're, it, they're too intertwined into my history and many other people's history. Like, I'm, I'm going to give you a good mm-hmm. example. And I'm not sure. I think we can kind of consider him a part of some one of the candidates. different. People like we have Mortimer Adler, and then there are others. I think there's the Catholic tradition of the canon. There's a lot of different canons out, but they, they often are almost identical with a few additions, right? So there's a philosopher. He's in my dissertation. I think his name is, um, I think Gaston Bachelard, I think is his name. Now, he's a French philosopher, right? That would be a man from the West, correct, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and he wrote this book called The Poetics of Space, and my guess is he would be in one of these canons that we consider the Western canon. There's different versions of it, but very similar to each other. Well, then I'm reading this book called The House on Mango Street, which is a, tells about Hispanic life. It's a children's book, but it's not really a children's book, but it's a children's book that talks about what it means to grow up Hispanic in America. And this, this author tells about her growing up life when she moves to this house on Mango Street and she talks about the culture and blah. But in her introduction, she talks about how Bachelard was, I hope I'm saying his name right. Those who are listening, please don't make me mad that I'm saying it wrong. But but she talks <laughs> about um, how this book was inspired by this French philosopher, but she's Hispanic. I, I See, I get chills when I think about it, because what he's talking about is how he, he connects philosophy to architecture and how human beings use living spaces and dwelling spaces, Right. And I used him to explain how we as black people had to dwell here in America and how classics helped us to do that. Okay, well, anyway, that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But my point is he's, he's not saying, well, I'm only writing this philosophy on the poetics of space for the West. Everything he says, no matter where you are from, you can relate to what it means to live and be in a space and how that space defines who you are. And so and she is able to connect that to her writing about Hispanic culture in this house on Mango Street. And so in my reading, I find a lot of people do that. I, I've seen it in ta Coast. I've seen a lot of people from varying backgrounds find some connection to some author from the West. And then they, I don't want to know if I want to use the word appropriated, but they, use, they kind of translate it into their own language, their own culture, their own Meaning their life meaning, and they rewrite it, and that that's really the heart of the great conversation, according to Mortimer Adler. Right, we're supposed to be reading these texts and internalizing for ourselves to understand our humanity, and then talking back through writing to each other, so we can our conversation can continue through time. What well, a lot of people have been doing that, not just people from the West.
1: Right, you're reminding me of uh, the conversation that I had with Gloria Valdery on this podcast. It was a few months ago now, but. You know, she was talking about Beyonce's "Black Is King," mm-hmm. and how it's how it's basically a retelling of The Lion King, right? Yes, yes. And and I pointed out, well, The Lion King is a retelling of Hamlet. Mm, 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 and mm. so, you know, just just thinking about that, we were talking and just about the the way that you know things beget other things and yes. inspire one another. So you're talking about the same thing. There's yes. there's kind of it's impossible for any work of, you know, any human work to be isolated, right? It has to be in conversation with the world around it. Yep. Yep. And it, you know, it has to relate to and connect with the human condition because that's, that's all we can do really. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, I forget, I forget which movie it was, but uh, watching a movie with my brothers. And when we came out, you know, my youngest brother was like, you know, I was, it's still about people. You know, I think I think it was like I think it was like yeah. a movie, something having to do with outer space and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And we had no idea going in what we were going to see. Yeah. But then walking out, he's like, it, it, it's always just about people at the people. end of the day. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I was like, yeah, I mean, how could it be about anything else? Whether yeah. it's talking animals or talking robots or whatever, it's yes. always going to be about humanity because that's yeah. all we can ever connect to and comment on. Yep. That's, yeah, that's, ahead. Ahead.
2: One of, and That's one of the reasons why I have been desperate to have this time with you guys in the midst of all the craziness Mm. I was like we've got to have this conversation because I really want to have this conversation with people who understand what I'm trying to say and I don't know if people are following but I was kind of having this conversation on on Twitter about how we're all equal and how there is no great human civilization that all human civilizations are great they just build on the other and it was very Mm. some people got offended because they wanted me to say the West is the greatest because it has come up with so many things and so on and so forth and I said well the West came later. Like there are other human civilizations before the West. And even though I do honor the fact that the West did come up with some great things that we benefit from, um, i.e. the Western canon. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But they their knowledge base is rooted. And that's not that's not taking anything away. Every human civilization builds on the other. So then I get a comment says, well, Pythagoras, what about the Pythagorean theorem? And he did this and that. I said, but Pythagoras studied with the Egyptians for 21 years. So like, and he admits that I got this knowledge. I mean, you could read Euclid. He got this knowledge. That's what I love the Greeks and the ancient Romans because they don't really hide it. Like We, we try to hide it as we move away from classics because mm-hmm. somebody wants to say, somebody wants to set themselves up as the great civilization. Well, the, the the ancients were in a different space. I'm not saying they were perfect. They sure enough were not. They had a lot of craziness going on too. But they just weren't weren't doing that, you know, where they were trying to say one race came up with everything and one race is the source of everything. Because that's just not true. That is a fallacy. And I think that fallacy is actually probably at the root of our struggle is that there's this competition to say, I'm the greatest civilization. Everything came from me. Everything came from me. But that's not true. If the West is um, rooted in some of the things that are found out in that are discovered and and created in say ancient African civilizations or ancient Middle Eastern civilizations, they, they continue to build on that and they, and they created something. And that's what human civilization has been. We're so interconnected, but there seems to be this argument over, no, we're not. One of us is better than the other. (laughs) And they just desperately want to believe that, but you can't do it. The way humanity was, Formulated, whether you believe in evolution or they were created, you get a sense that we all just kind of got here at the same time and that (laughs) our greatness was kind of going on at the same time. There wasn't like black people were here first and then the white people were were created and then, you know, so like we all just were kind of here. And then we went Mm -hmm. into our different spaces in the universe and started doing our greatness. And we kind of discovered each other at some type of crossroads. I was, oh, that's so interesting. Let me borrow that for you, from you. Okay. And then, and we just kind of create greatness together. So no one, there is no competition. No one is better.
0: This seems right. to me to be rooted in some sort of weird historical illiteracy in a way. Um, yeah, I yes. think, I mean, we all know the story of like Marco Polo going all the way to China yes. and like, you know, bringing noodles back or, you know, bringing right. gunpowder back. Um, exactly. Or, or the anachronism of like what what you, you just referred to the Middle Eastern civilizations and how yeah you know, there was a time when that actually was the center of knowledge for the world. Yes. And and, and during that period, Europe was actually in the Dark Ages, you know, with the Crusades and, and you know, there was a lot of fighting going on and and, mm-hmm. and Europe was plagued by by tyranny and just wars yep. and ravaging yep. versus the Middle yep. East was the place where all these, you know, houses of, of knowledge yes. and translations and libraries yep. were, were being built. Libraries, yes. And if not for those efforts, the Greeks and the Romans would have never... Happened because that was the pathway where knowledge got transferred to them. Yeah, and so this seems to me to be a failure of, I mean, education almost. Like, what is going on in our schools? And and so, yeah, I I just wanted you to weigh in on what do you think is going on because this seems to be lost. And and Mm -hmm. kids nowadays, this this new intellectual fad of trying to decolonize studies and 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 partition knowledge and say this does not belong to you it seems to ignore the the human history, recent, yes. especially modern history.
2: Well, I think in this effort to decolonize, which, which I understand why people are saying that, but I think a lot of people are doing it without having an understanding of human history.
0: Hmm.
2: And they're so adamant about making sure curriculum is not racist, curriculum is not elevating, especially European cultures above all other cultures. But... I, I personally feel the best way to decolonize curriculum is to show how we're a part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you could almost, um I do, sometimes I do teacher trainings in different classical schools and usually when I walk in the room and set up my stuff, you can feel the tension in the room and I think they think I'm going to come change your curriculum. And so I'll start off and I'll say, the first thing I'm going to say to you is I'm not going to change your curriculum. And you could just immediately, you can hear the, oh, like you can hear the relief. <laughs> And I said, I'm going to show you how to go in your, use your curriculum. And the reason why I do it this way is because it's a lot to change curriculum. You got to go through the board, you got to go through the board of education, or if it's a private school, the regular board. And a lot of times you might have a lot of people in there that don't want to change the curriculum. So I want to give you some tools on how to do it with what you got. Mm -hmm. And all it is, is I said, ask yourself a question when you are teaching a lesson, who else is here? I mean, you can really do a search. What black people, like you could do a search and say, what black people were, were there any black, were there any black pilgrims? And there was, I think, I forgot his name, but there was a black pilgrim. He was not an enslaved, he was not an indentured servant. And there was a black pilgrim, and he has a little bit of a story. I wish I could remember it. I'm sorry I can't. My brain is a little foggy. But put, <laughs> if you look it up, who was the black pilgrim? Or you can say, uh, who, you know, if you talk about Lewis and Clark, where are the black people? If you're talking about Columbus, where there... And you will almost always find a Native American, a black person. I mean, you'll find any number of people of color in the stories that our schools use. So that's my first tactic for anyone listening is ask yourself who all is there? Who else is part of the story? A lot of times let's talk about American history, the way we just don't talk about black people at all, even though we're there. We're driving, even though we're enslaved people, we're actually driving the carriage that's taking George Washington to sign whatever documents he needs to sign. We're getting him dressed. We're talking with him about different things. I mean, we're a part of we're building the White House. We just moved to Alexandria, Virginia, and part of Alexandria, Virginia that lines the Potomac River is man-made. And so I I did my usual question. Where are we in this story? Well, we built that man-made, we literally, my ancestors, took big boulders, waded out into the water and set the boulders that helped to set that man-made part of Old Town Alexandria on the Potomac River. These are stories we need to tell, and these are things our kids need to understand. And they need to understand that we all, if we live here in this country, this, I'm just talking about America by itself, we all had something to say and participate in with this. But our with this country, with the creation and the progress of this country. But our, or if you talk about the light bulb, you know Thomas You go through the books, and they talk about Thomas Edison. Well, you needed to be talking about Latimer because Thomas Edison had Latimer working with him, and He built the filament that helped to make the electricity go through the light bulb. But we don't talk about where black people or people of color for that matter. And I talk a lot about black people because I'm black and that's where my my background is expertise. But I'm hoping that as I talk about where black people exist in all of history, it'll inspire other people to say, well, if she's seeing it and she's saying there are other people of color in this story, Let me go see how my people have fit into this story.
1: So Anika, I wanted to ask you though, because, you know, trying to understand the perspective of the, you know, decolonize the curriculum folks, I can see the argument being, Mm -hmm. you know, there's only so much room, right? It is kind of a zero sum contest. It's kind Mm -hmm. of, there is kind of a scarcity, right? Because there's only so much time in a class there's only so yeah. many classes yeah. in a year and then your students just move on and whatever they got, they got. And whatever they didn't right. get, they didn't get. And of course, all of the world's knowledge is impossible to cram in, right? So yes. now we need to, and, you know, I think it's safe to say that the, the culprits that they identify, you know, these old dead white men, right, quote yes. unquote, uh, have monopolized the conversation for, you know, the majority yes. of history and now it's yes. time to bump them bump them go. off stage. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, obviously I think that's a reasonable concern. It's a reasonable point of view to yes. have. I, I think we would probably disagree with the methodology for, yes. for fixing that problem, right? Yes. But what do you think? What do you think about that?
2: I think you and I are feeling the same way. We don't yeah. want to throw out the text. I have this cartoon in my head. I think I'm going to get somebody to draw it for me. Where I have this cartoon, if you can visualize it, of um, a selection of, of, great texts, like maybe there's, you know, Plato's Republic or Aristotle's mm-hmm. Poetics or whatever, and they're kind of like in cartoon form with arms, legs, and a face, and there's this angry mob of diverse people running after them, and they're saying, what did I do? I'm just being a book, and I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm saying that I think our anger and our frustration is directed at the wrong place. I think that the, the direction of our frustration should be at curriculum design. It should be at teachers, school leaders, educational curriculum publishers, and just that, that whole field of education, rethinking how we teach literature and reading and history um, so that it doesn't get rid of anything, but it brings in more to the conversation. And I do want to say this. We, we also have to, to um, it's okay to study the West. And I, I don't know if it's going to make people mad at me. I hope no one thinks I'm Uncle Tomming my way through this conversation. I'm not. <laughs> uh, and
1: well, I've that been because, called worse. Right. I'm sure you have too. <laughs>
2: yes, indeed. I, I say <laughs> that because, as I said earlier, We have ethnic study. Like, we have studies of other cultures and ways of life, and it's okay. I have students who are just fascinated with Korean culture. Like, they spend their days, any free moment they have, studying the Korean language, studying Korean culture. And I'm not gonna say that, well, you're black, you shouldn't be studying that. You know, we all find ourselves interested. And for some reason, this chocolate woman found an interest in the Western canon and classics. I don't know why, but I did, and I'm not ashamed of that. However, the problem is, If I just studied it as if it's the greatest or I studied it as if I'm appropriating it or assimilating into something that I'm not and that's why I'm reading it, that's where the problem lies. Mm -hmm. But if I'm reading it and I'm trying to see where my people have intersected with it, how it has inspired other people around the world, whether they be more people from Europe or people from the West or, or, or people from, I mean, other people from the West or Black culture, African culture uh Brazilian culture, as I said with pa- Paulo Freire, like that's when we should see where the it's when we study it for the intersectionality. Mm. And 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 the sad part about it is I was sharing this one day on Twitter, I think last week, and someone said intersectionality is going to destroy the West. And I said, oh and so I said, Dad, I just can't win. I'm 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 mm. not saying get rid of the books. And what I'm finding is there really is a group of people. I can't tell how large this group of people is. But there is a group that doesn't, they want not just to keep the books, they want the books to be the only and the premiere. Mm. And this is kind of a, like at first when I started this journey, I said, oh, maybe they just, people don't just realize that these books connect to all of us. And maybe if I just share that we're all equal and we've all, all of our ancestors have somehow found our way to this book and we'll be really excited. and All our problems will be solved, right? <laughs> but, but in my sharing, there's been a major argument of, no, it's better. It's the, it's the best. It's the premiere. It's come up with everything. And, mm-hmm. and, and then the final nail in the coffin for me was when someone very educated said intersectionality destroys the story of the West. I said, no, it, it preserves it. When we talk about right. how we connect it, it preser- we preserve each other. Hmm. And it, it was connected to when I said on Twitter, I'm not here to preserve the West. And that just offended some people. <laughs> and, 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 but then right after that, I said, I'm not here to preserve the West. I'm here to preserve the stories of those who connected to the West. Because mm. this is our common heritage. It's one of the few things that we all have in common.
1: Yeah.
2: Especially if you've come to America from another place, most people have read something from the canon to find their way here. And I want to tell those stories. I'm not here to elevate the West. Why would I do that? I'm a Black woman. Like, why would I do that? <laughs> so, so you know, but... And so, but that was a problem. And that's what made me realize it's not just about integration or intersectionality. It's about, we want to preserve that this is superior.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I can see, I can see two reasons for that. The first one being kind of what I was talking about before about the scarcity thing. You know, if, if there's yeah. limited space, then everyone starts pushing for their particular thing. Yes. Right. And, and that's actually the second mm-hmm. problem. The second problem yes. is thinking it's your thing. Right. Mm, So, you know, mm. even I wonder what you think about this, because you just said, I don't want to preserve the West. Why would I do that? I'm a black woman. Right. Yes. But that seems to contradict the idea of Tolstoy is mine. Mm. You know, Shakespeare Mm. is mine. Right. Mm. Because I I think what's going on is, well, Mm. then my team's got to be the team that gets, you know, the the special favor. But Mm. the idea of teams in that regard is ridiculous. Right. It's essentialism to say, Mm -hmm. you know, European... European works only belong to people descended from Europe. Yeah, that's crazy, right? It is. So, what and do you think thing, about the tension there?
2: I well, uh, I don't know why this thought is making me think connect to what you're saying. Another, another. I hope this answers your question in a roundabout way. But another <laughs> thing that we see not present in the list of the canon is uh, most canons do not um, include. He um, wrote Walden. Oh, Thoreau Jesus. yeah Thor yeah. like Henry yeah. David Thoreau, right, yes, yeah, Thoreau. yes, Henry David Thoreau, hmm. right, many of them don't include him, right, so I read Walden and i've and and um and they don't include other works of people who fought on the side of abolition mm. and that's very concerning to me that the and so and so and and the reason why I'm, but let's talk about Henry David Thoreau, right, people think you can you you should definitely include him in, in the Western canon because he's you know ancestrally from the West. And he, I mean, he's got Latin throughout his writings. He's referencing all the works of the canon. He is definitely a part of a conversation. But in his book, he talks about the small group of black people that lived around Walden and how they disappeared and how that was of great concern to him. He writes civil disobedience, which says he was against slavery. And I think the, um, was it the Mexican one of the wars that uh, was being fought and he um, is not included, even though he's having this conversation. So back to what you're saying is, is, is this, that there's no time because there is still a desire to promote one narrative in our education. Mm-hmm. And so when we start talking mm-hmm. about intersection, when we start talking about diversity, when we start talking about these, and so, so Henry David Thoreau is white and he is having the great conversation with the great books, the works of the canon. But he's not included because what he's saying does not fit the narrative of superiority. And so what we have to think though now is, again, we're not directing our anger towards these books, but we're directing our anger or frustration or energy. Let's say energy, that's more positive word. We're directing our energy towards curriculum. And what is it we want to teach our kids? Because do we want to teach them that one group is superior to another? Do we wanna teach them to ignore the story of the enslaved people as insignificant to American history? Mm -hmm. And, And right now it seems like curriculum wants to teach that narrative. And so anything else outside of that narrative, of course, there's no time for. And so that's why when I talk to teachers and I'll say, you know, you're bored, may not want you to change your curriculum. So let me give you some tools to just kind of start. If you just start including little tidbits, it'll, it'll awaken a child's mind until we can get curriculum to change. Let's start someplace. So if you're talking about the Thanksgiving dinner, let's talk about who the, the natives were that were having that dinner and how they felt and what was going on. Let's talk about, if you're going to talk about the constitution, let's talk about the constitution of the Iroquois Nation, which is actually what the constitution is based on. That didn't take but a few seconds, but immediately, when I say that, it no longer is the white man's story. Right? Like they need to know the Native people, the leaders of the Iroquois Nation, came to the Constitutional co- uh, the Convention as an inspiration for this document that was used by the natives to bring peace to various different Native tribes that have been warring with each other for hundreds of years. And so, people like Benjamin Franklin saw the success of their Constitution. And wanted to implement it into and I'm not making you can go to on PBS. It's 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 plenty out there reliable sources that talk about this. It's not really hidden. We just don't include it in curriculum. And you could just for a second just say that and that'll revolutionize a child's mind from thinking this story is about somebody else and it's not about me or about people mm. of color.
0: I think that so I think that the the tilos is not about preserving the West, as you said, but it is about yeah. What ideas are good ideas that we want to pass on to for yes. the next generation to inherit? Right. And, and, yes, yes. and whatever good ideas will, will just survive. I mean, think, think about it from the perspective yes, of yes. science, obviously, whatever, whatever science yes. that is right, will survive and get, get passed yes. out to the next generation. Yes. I, I'm curious, how, how did you personally, cause you're growing up, you're, you're reading all this stuff in, in, in your, in your intellectual journey how did you come to this epiphany that all of our stories, all of these human stories are actually connected? Mm -hmm. Like what was that aha moment? Because, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious uh, about your own personal awakening there.
2: Um, I would say that Du Bois was the one who began to awaken me because before I met him, I was already teaching the great books class and I was having pretty good Mm -hmm. success. I was using the arts to help African-American students connect to difficult literature, right? But they were not seeing themselves in the literature. And I just stumbled upon an essay by Du Bois where he was talking about reading the canon. And um, which made me read all the rest of his stuff about reading the canon. And and that was the beginning of me saying, wait, there are people of color that find meaning in these texts. And this is why. And he led me to Frederick Douglass. Then they led me to Anna Julia Cooper. And then I began to just kind of see it everywhere. Like I could be reading anything and I'd see some reference to the canon just pop up. And so in that process, um, I began to teach that way. I began to teach the canon, but then I would teach an African-American text that referenced a piece of the canon. And then we'd read that piece of the canon so they could see why that author, that Black author included the canon. So for example, and I've shared this example before, but... um, We read Raisin in the Sun, and there's a line in the play where one of the characters calls the protagonist Prometheus, and then we move on. So then we read Prometheus Bound, and they were able to see this connection between sometimes a person may stand up for doing what's right, and everyone's trying to warn them that they're being bullheaded about this process, but they're really trying to do what's best for humanity or for their people or for their family. And we see that in Prometheus, we see that in Walter, and A Raisin in the Sun. And so my point with that is this, is um, that, and so I began this journey, so I'm still kind of addicted to this process of reading and, and paying attention to where the West is, is a part of someone's culture, not through colonization, but because the person of color chose to see the value in the text and then bring it into their community. So uh, one final example to prove my point my husband and I went to Hawaii to celebrate our 14th anniversary. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to chill. I didn't even bring anything to really read. I said, I'm just going to hang out with my husband and enjoy my time. So we we took a tour (laughs) of the, we took a tour of the um, King and Queen's Palace, not used anymore, but a museum to just show the history of Hawaii before America came along and took it. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. And, um, (laughs) but then as you're touring it, you go into this library and the tour guide says, and this was, I can't pronounce the, the name, but this was the king's library. And as you see, he loved reading the Western canon. Now, this was before America came. This is while Hawaii was just the Hawaiian people. But he would, the kings and queens at that time would leave. They'd get on their boat or whatever, and they'd leave and visit other countries, and they were diplomatic, you know, and they'd invite other people in. And, he, and, and so you see Don Quixote, like he, and he loved to read. And then the, the last queen, I think Liliu Kalani had like a book of prayers, like, which would be probably in some of the religious Western canons. And, um, and all that to say is these people had this before it was quote unquote forced on them. And I say quote unquote, I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but mm-hmm. this was their choice. They read it. And so that was very much, I could identify with that because I opened up Aristotle and he spoke to me as my soul. I don't know why. It's not because I liked him better than black people, but what he was saying about wonder and questioning and seeing how animals are created to fulfill a certain purpose or essential being spoke to my soul. It had nothing to do with me favoring white people. And so I find that story is the same all across. People, whether you're Huey P. Newton, who was the founder of the Black Panther, felt the same way about finding Plato's Republic. Like, people just read these texts and they speak life to us. They're powerful works. And we need to be studying what powerful people have found inspiration in these texts? Because if we cancel them, we lose that story. We lose an important part of yeah. human history.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's just so that's so good. And I'm also thinking it's funny. Uh, I just got back from Hawaii a couple of weeks ago. My, <laughs> my wife and I did our our honeymoon there, and oh. we visited the. We didn't go inside, but we did visit the palace. Yes, and. And, you know, uh, around that same time on our, on our Substack, actually, there was a piece that came out about Hawaiian history. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy, this guy, Chris, he, uh, Chris Ferguson, he, he had visited Hawaii many times and it, it only had just occurred to him to pick up a book on Hawaiian history. That's and, amazing. you know, he starts reading it and, and, you know, it's fascinating stuff, but it's also really difficult stuff because, is, yes. yes, of course, you know, uh, the United States annexed Hawaii, but it's easy to kind of have a simplistic narrative about yes. the way that that history played out yep, and the way that yep. Hawaiian history, even yep. before the U S shows up. Right. Yes. I mean, I think it's Kame, Kamehameha is the, yes, the king. Yes,
2: yes, 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 That's, and, yes. <laughs> and,
1: but he was also a conquering warlord. Like yes. he took over the other islands, yes, and, yes, yes, you know? So, I mean, humanity is complex and human history is complex. Right. Yeah. So, yes. um, So it's just fascinating to, when you dig in and you realize, oh, it's just more humanity here. There's just more humanity here. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. Um, Yep. And I think, I think the thing that we're all kind of circling around is that you opened up Aristotle and it spoke to you. Yeah. Not because you are the same ethnicity as Aristotle or because you have the same color skin. It's because you're a human being. Yes. And there's something yep. about it that is human, whether, yes. even if they intended it, even if let's just say, you know, oh, I don't know, I guess oh, like Wagner or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like Wagner mm-hmm. had a very yes. specific audience in mind yes. Yes. and everybody else was out, right? Yes, but, but we can still listen to Wagner and be yes. like, wow, yes. like there's something yes. human going on here, right? Yes, yes. So despite the, the <laughs> even the intentions of the, of yes. the artist in that case. Yes. They're horrible ones. We can yes. still pull humanity from it because that's we the just, inextricable part.
2: Yes. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and that, that's really what it's all about. I think the reason why I keep tooting this horn and saying these same things over and over is it's just I just feel like it's a grave mistake that people are making by trying to cancel. You're canceling our our human story. I, I, I and I want people to understand that. Um, but, but then... We, we're asking, but, but this is the thing, and this is not to hurt anyone who's listening. Mm. To, to, to preserve it, though, people have to read and see. And so I, I have seen some posts sometimes from educators who will say things like, oh, I could never understand Shakespeare. or I could never read so-and-so. I even listened to something somebody said the other day. I don't really read. I just like to read the abridged versions or just kind of get the clips of things. And so I think <laughs> one thing that is probably also at the root of this is people being nervous about being held accountable for doing some serious reading. Mm,
1: say more, we, yeah, say more about You that.
2: know, like we, we we can't just teach children how to do phonics. We have to teach mm. our students how to read. I get college students at all campuses, not just at H. Howard. I teach at all types of universities. And I always have some students, no matter where I am, who don't like to read. And somehow they got into college by barely reading. Just enough to get by, mm-hmm. and that's just unhealthy. And so, a lot of reasons why I think this big fight is going on. is I don't know if many people are really reading the text. I don't know if they're mm. disciplining themselves to do the reading. And This is not. God, I'm so nervous of saying this because I don't want somebody to say I think I'm so smart because I, I, I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> I feel like I could read more. I don't think I've read enough. There's people who read definitely more than I have, and I'm always beating myself up for not reading enough. Um, but we have to really read history. We have to really read the canon before we can cancel it and figure out, well, why? Why did Luther King fill a letter from a Birmingham jail that he wrote from memory? He's, he's referencing, I know over a hundred, he makes over a hundred references to some works of the canon in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He had no books. He had to ask someone to smuggle in some paper and pencil. And he writes that letter citing references from various works of the canon from memory. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most beautiful written pieces we've ever seen. That he's writing to white, and I think there was a rabbi in the group too, but white ministers who are telling him he's wrong for protesting civil rights. Mm -hmm. That he needs to just submit to authority and just allow things to naturally take his course. And boy, does he tell them what he thinks <laughs> yeah, using, yeah. you know, using the <laughs> canon, using yeah. the canon. So people who want to cancel it, they don't want to cancel Martin Luther King. But okay, so you cancel the canon, none of your students will understand anything, Martin Luther King. You will only think he marched and said, "I have a dream." Hmm. You will not understand the scholarly foundation behind the work that he did. And are you saying that's not that important? We we shouldn't know the scholarly foundation of the one of the greatest activists to ever live that changed our country tremendously? Wouldn't we, want, wouldn't we want our children to know, well, how did he come to think this way?
0: I, I think you're up against another, another thing, right? Which is you're starting to see a lot of people make this argument about higher education as a whole and saying, well, who cares about the classics? A, a classical you know, education, one based on liberal arts is out, you know, college is so expensive. You're You're going to, go in debt to the tune of $50,000 and end up, you know, working as a Starbucks barista, because what exactly does that prepare you for? And so there's this other force Mm -hmm. where we're saying, you know, Mm -hmm. all this stuff is just useless. We, you know, we should just get people uh, to do vocational uh, kind of studies, right? Like prepare them for the modern economy, go into engineering and things like that. So I think, I think there's this other force that, that you're up against that, that, that we have to convince people, you know, why, why have a classics-based education at all? Like, why is it important to read the ancient Greeks mm-hmm. and the ancient Romans, you know? I, and I think that part, mm-hmm. maybe we're not selling it enough, but, but yes. you know, there, there's, a, there's a there's a need to do so, I think. Yeah.
2: Well, I think if people understood where that mindset came from, this this vocational learning and education is rooted in white supremacy. Like, that's where it was birthed out of white supremacy. I think if everyone understood that, so... Hmm.
0: Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yep, yeah, here we go. So I always say, I say, uh, a lot of people say the classics or the great books or classical education was used to oppress us. But the truth of the matter is the taking of it was the oppression. And so let me go, Mm. go into some history. So Mm. when America started, the only classical education, only education was classical education. There was no Montessori or Sudbury or traditional or non-traditional or public. It was all classical. Everyone read classically, right? And everyone studied classically. If they went to school, if they had any schooling, uh, whether they went formally or just taught themselves, it was rooted in some type of classical tradition. So that's going on in the early parts of America. That's going on up through enslavement. The, the enslaved people would overhear lessons and take books from the master's library, all to kind of get this classical education. When slavery ended, Abraham Lincoln, before his death, set up uh, the Freedmen's Bureau. And it was a messy attempt, but it was, he tried. Um, The Freedmen's Bureau, which was there to to set up all types of resources to help the newly freed people acclimate into American civil life, but one of the things of the one of the roles of the the the, um, Freedmen's Bureau was to set up schools, and the person to direct the Freedmen's Bureau was a man by the name Oliver Howard. Now, Oliver Howard is the founder of Howard Howard University, and most of the schools that the Freedmen's Bureau set up, with uh, Oliver Howard leading the way, were classical, which is why Howard had a classics department. Okay. But right around that time, Abraham Lincoln dies, Andrew Johnson takes over, begins to shut down the work of the Freedmen's Bureau. And around that same time, Booker T. Washington is becoming very popular. But Booker T. Washington, and you can, it's in his autobiography, he talks about why do we need to learn Latin and Greek? You know, what is it? We need to learn how they can have jobs. And he begins to promote, and he talks a lot about it in his Atlanta Compromise, he begins to promote us staying in our place. Don't get involved with civil rights. Don't, don't worry about voting. Don't try to get involved with politics. Just learn a good trade so that you can have a good job and whites and blacks will patronize you. You can make money and take care of your family and just accept your place in society. And so all, most of Du Bois' writings, people don't realize, is arguing with Booker T. Washington. A large part of Du Bois' work was trying to keep America from going the way of Booker T. Washington, especially with regards to how Black people are educated. And so um, technically, Du Bois lost that battle. The the country went the way of Booker G. Washington's thinking, where trade learning became a more popular way to go, especially for Black students. But then with integration, trade learning went in with everyone, whites and Blacks, because there was just kind of this attitude of, we're going to give the same education to everyone. Since we have to integrate, then no one gets it. And so uh, this type of, and, and to prove my point, my mom tells, this is kind of like a practical example of what I mean. My mom grew up in the um, um, segregated South, North Carolina. There was a neighborhood pool. And when segregation happened, instead of the pool opening its doors for all people to swim, they closed down the pool. And so there's this- Oh, ad- you mean
1: when, when integration happened?
2: Yeah, integration. Yes. When integration wow. happened. Yes. They clo- instead of opening the pool to black people, they closed the pool down completely. And yeah. so- that same mentality goes into this education of what well, we got to integrate, we're going to end segregation, we're going to all give everyone this other kind of education, and so literally all of America
1: with the is route so stupid,
2: right? Sorry. And so if we if we right if we understood where did this where did this trade learning come from, if we understood mm-hmm. that it's rooted in white supremacy, then maybe we'd rethink it. And so mm-hmm. we and we and so with Abraham Lincoln being murdered. Andrew Johnson bringing, ushering in Jim Crow, ending the work of the Freedmen's Bureau that was set to try to set up schools where we could be equitably educated Mm -hmm. with the same education that the founding fathers and others had so we could be a participant in this democracy and have knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because if you notice, for that brief time that that things were going well before Andrew Johnson, right, we were, Black people were being elected to public office. This is just, it was a really small window in history. But then Andrew Johnson shuts that all down. And then, oh, it, and then yeah. here comes Booker T. Washington with this uh, learning a trade type thing. And before long, all of America is going the easy route, the more mm. utilitarian type of education. Yeah. And what people don't understand is that classical education, this is what Du Bois tries to talk about, this is also what Anna Julia Cooper talks about in some of her essays, is that classical education actually allows you to do other things. Like you look at yeah. St. John's College, so many graduates, for example, from St. John's College Go on to be engineers and scientists mm. because there's a, there's a way of thinking that is exercise. I had a student, this is in my dissertation who said what he loved about my class is that when he graduated from me and went into computer engineering, he was one of the only ones in his class who could understand the textbook. And he felt it was because of what I made him read that he had had this uh, exercise of reading challenging yeah. literature and comprehending it and being able to mm. teach himself and, and to navigate his way. He's now a CPA, but that's
1: fascinating. Like it's, it's, I feel, I feel like it's the result of so many little issues. One of the issues is just the kind of the siloing off of, of, you know, academic pursuits or, or, you know, math is here. English is here. History is here. Yes. And they don't, they don't connect, but they totally connect. I mean, math has a history. Yes. History is, is language. Like there's language in his like it's, it's a crazy kind of division that we create there. But also, I mean, to be fair, I think, you know, I can see Booker T. Washington's perspective being kind of, you know, maybe he didn't articulate it this way. Uh, I'm not very well read with, with Washington's work, but I can imagine that it's connected to a kind of Maslow's hierarchy kind of perspective where it's like, we don't have time for that. Right. We're starving. We're struggling. We need to, we need to set that foundation. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, but, and I can understand that, but I guess the problem there is that there's a human kind of, there's a, there's a spiritual almost enrichment that comes from the humanities. Yes. That if you, if, if you don't have it, the kind of, you know, whether you, whether you, you get into that trade and, and you have a kind of Sustainable life based on those things. There's a certain level of just human experience that you don't get mm-hmm. to tap into, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I think that gets lost, yes. understandably, but it gets lost, and you know, it's kind of our job to remind people.
2: Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, we look at some of the greatest thinkers of the world, even Doctor Fauci. He, he was a man of humanities. That was part mm-hmm. of his study. He took his the college he chose allowed him to study the canon and the various other classic texts. In addition to studying pre med and so on, so you know, I mean, it's, there's a there is and, and there's there's so much science in the canon. There's there's a, so right. many mathematical works, scientific works, you know, mm-hmm. that are foundational to these fields. And and I feel strongly about this because it's kind of what we went through and Howard closed the classics department. And I, like you said, I, I do want to say this. It's not that I dislike Booker T. Washington because I do think he loved his people.
0: Of course, I yeah, he yeah.
2: had. You know, I don't believe he was trying to hurt us. I think. He, you know, he probably had seen lynchings. He'd seen such horrors after we yeah. were free. And I'm sure he wanted to protect us. Like, don't do anything to get yourself killed, basically. Right. Right. And so he was trying <laughs> right. to find a way to help us survive. Mm-hmm. And Du Bois, who had never been enslaved and actually did not even live in the Jim Crow South, writing about how the best way to educate Black people during these times, he just didn't have the credibility to right. win that battle. And so yeah. I often wish that Anna Julia Cooper tried to combine the two, but, you know, it just seemed like Booker T. Washington was so powerful and so influential in both black and white circles. He he technically yeah. won that battle. and We're still fighting that battle today, you know?
1: Yeah. I could speak to, it can, I think it speaks to a real need yes. that people were having at the time. And so of course, you know, that's what they're going to respond yes. to. It's very easy to say, to say, well, you know, if it's between uh, the works of Plato yes. or a plate of food, you know, yes. I'm going to get the yes, food. Basically, right? <laughs> yes. I'm starving. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, um, I know, I know, I don't, I know um, we definitely want to talk about the Living Water School, okay. but, I, but, you know, you made me think of something as you were talking that, that, you know, Martin Luther King is sitting in Birmingham jail and he's citing all these works by memory. Yes. And how we can't really do that we can do it. I think a lot of us can do it with like Game of Thrones yeah. or Harry Potter or something. Yes. Right. And I think about this a lot. It, you know, you can, these are fictional worlds. This is work of fiction, but people can tell you every detail about everything that has ever been in Star Wars. Yeah.
0: I was going to say that. Yeah. I, I'm very familiar with the Star Wars canon. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. So Melissa can give you the spiel. My wife can give you the spiel you know, yeah. about like, oh, what model aircraft is this? What model <laughs> spacecraft is this? You know, like, what are they wearing on this planet? What is this planet versus right. this planet? And like the history of, you know, thousands of years and Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, same thing. And, and why can people do that? Yeah. I think the reason people can do that, the reason why they can do it with something like that and maybe not with, you know, uh, American history yeah. or any history is because they have, they have an emotional and... The emotional investment and yes. human connection to Star Wars that is not given to them yes. with they can have it. It's it's. I mean, every story is based on history, yes. right? It comes from. Yes. that. Yeah. But but yeah. there's there's something lacking in the way it's being taught. Yes. So actually, this dovetails nicely yeah. into the Living Water School. You know, how do you approach giving you know giving kids this sort of connection to things so that it matters yes. to them in the same way as Star Wars yeah. matters?
2: Yeah. I th- the biggest thing is being able to show how it connects to our ancestors. Like that, that breaks down all the mm. walls. You know, black people yeah. in general, parents, students, we can be very guarded when we feel like we're being oppressed with someone else's story. And because for for centuries, our mm-hmm. story has never mattered. It's like our you're, right. that we right. this is why I get frustrated when people get mad at me for saying I'm not here to promote the West Uh, and I'm going to tell you why I get offended when people expect me to preserve the West as a black woman. It makes me think of a plantation. Mm. I'm not here to serve your story. And that's what my ancestors have had to do since we got here. We've been here to, we were feeding the master's children. You know, like if we had our own babies to breastfeed, we were also breastfeeding the master's children. We were feeding the master. We were doing everything to preserve the master and his vision. So I personally get offended when people get upset with me that I don't want to be that slave. I'm not here to serve anyone. Of course, I'm a Christian, Christian, so I'm here to serve God, but I'm not here to serve (laughs) you. You know, I'm here to bring us together. I'm here to make sure everyone understands the story of my people and other marginalized groups and minorities who may have similar human experiences that I have that have found some type of hope in this collection of work. That is what I'm here. And if that offends you, then that makes me concerned about how do you see me? If Mm. you see me as your servant, serving the purpose of your story, then I got an issue with that. And I'm hoping nobody's offended, but that's just my reality. So I'm very clear on saying, I'm not here. I'm here to serve this purpose. This This is a type of study that my ancestors had and was instrumental in bringing them out of oppression. And I want to give this type of education to my students. And that's what I seek to do at the Living Water School. And so I do that by showing them different authors of color who have connected to the canon. And we read those. We read the cultures there. And then we'll read other pieces of the canon. And they they appreciate it much more as these are just human stories.
1: You know, well, actually, tell us, tell us, uh, tell us what the Living Water School is okay. and how it works, okay? Because it's it's really interesting.
2: So it combines the Sudbury model, which is a very—I know people don't like this word—progressive uh, model. <laughs> um, it, it initially started out to be only progressive, only very free, and I chose it not for any political reasons, but I had a son that was not cooperative <laughs> in preschool, <laughs> and I was like, he has to go to, yeah. you know, he has to go to school, and I just instead of being so that he learns the way I want him to learn. I said, well, where can he learn best? And I found the Sudbury model and I really knew he would learn best because he does, he does a lot of self-teaching. He's very much self-educated in a lot of things. So.
1: And is that the Sudbury yes. model? teaching, So a lot sort of self-teaching,
2: teaching, you're your own teacher and you just kind of learn on your own very naturally and organically. And it really works. And I combined it with classical education because I am an educator and I, I believe in classical education. So I figured, and um, and my husband was really like, babe, we got to, we, we're raising black kids in the society. We, we can't take any chances. They don't have certain things in place. So we combine classical education with the Sudbury model. So it's half and half. So part of the day, um, there's not a lot of assemblies and a lot of um, interruptions to the day. So we go through, they learn Latin. Every Monday, is, um, they, discuss, they discuss an excerpt from a classic text. They learn Latin, and they write an essay. They have to write an essay a week, um, and there's a rubric for each grade level. Um, they do math. Um, science and history is done through uh, independent projects and presentations that they, they present every week. Our high schoolers do lab sciences um, in person. And then the other ha- and that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and for part of the day. And then they have free times throughout the day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And in those days, they are free to pursue interest. And so we have seen students develop their art skill, um, gaming design, we had a student who learned how to put together computers. Mm. So he, he like literally formed his own business fixing computers and he's only 16. So he goes to different offices and fixes their computers. And now he's graduated this last wow. couple of weeks ago and he's going to go to school for a computer something. Okay. So, and so, <laughs> uh, and, and so we do that. And then, um, Fridays we go hiking. It's a nature study is a big part of it, where they just go and observe and journal about nature and what we're observing. And, I use um George George Washington Carver as an inspiration that a lot of his creations came out of observing nature. And that's important. It's all I'm always showing that there's no such thing as that's a white thing's person to do. That's amazing. Because a lot of times when it comes to hiking and nature study and, and camping, right? Black kids, oh that's what white people do. Like that's what they that's what they're told. I'm like, no. Benjamin Banneker, George Washington Carver, and others study nature. And that's why you have a lot of the things that we have today is because like uh, Benjamin Banneker created an, an almanac from his observations. So it's important for black kids to see greatness came from <laughs> their people and they were connecting to the West and connecting mm-hmm. to all the stuff white people supposedly only did. And then the final thing I do with the nature right. study is I say, nature study is how the enslaved people got to freedom because they didn't have a map. They didn't have a tour guide. They were
1: <laughs> yeah. you know, they were yeah, studying
2: yeah, yeah. the stars. They were saying, okay, if the mushrooms are yeah. growing on this side of the trunk, Then I know this is the way I need to go. Like they were studying nature. A lot of the remedy, the natural remedies that people have with herbs and essential oils came from the knowledge of the enslaved people. Learning how to use the roots and things they found out in the woods because the master wouldn't do anything for them. So nature study is also a part of black history. See, I could go on and on. So the whole school's purpose (laughs) is to completely tear down this concept of white and black. What's white? and What is that? That is all ours. Everything is our heritage. I always tell my students at Howard, my students at the school, we are worldwide. Everything belongs to us. Every continent, every nook and cranny, every body of knowledge, every type of study, every exploration, every story in history belongs to us. Not more so than somebody else's, but we are a part, equally a part of that. And that's very important. So we spend a lot of time having that conversation. And then, I don't stop there, We then we celebrate every, like, we celebrate Hanukkah, we celebrate, it, huh? you know, we learn about Ramadan. <laughs> we learn about the um, Chinese New Year. Like we just go through, like I use this calendar that shows Native American history, everything. And we just, just, just tear back all of the fallacies that have been told about various groups of people who have gone through some stuff in this country. So that they can see that their story is very similar to someone else's. And these stories that we've been told in these history books are not true all the way. And we're going through this, not canceling anybody's story, not saying my story is better than yours, but all of us are a part of the human story and we're all equally important to that.
0: That is so, so beautiful and, and powerful. Um, and, and, you know, it, that part, what you said, uh, your, your approach to bringing your students uh, hiking and, and your retort to them. Made me chuckle because that is exactly like maybe it's an immigrant culture thing. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. But when I drag my my mom and I say, like, hey, let's go yes. hiking. She'll say exactly the same thing. That's white people. <laughs> it's a white people thing. You, you know, like, do you want to go skiing? It's a white people thing. They they just don't want to be cold. You know, I'm like, yes. Yeah. So it's very yes. universal. Yes. It's very, very universal. universal.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: And, and yes. I'm glad that you're, you're out there tearing down, you know, the, those barriers and, and, uh, getting people to yeah. just dissociate, what, dissociating traits from, from this, uh, immutable characteristic, characteristic, um, it's very powerful. So, you know, we're, yes. we're going to wrap up. And, yes. and one of the things that we, uh, we, we asked the, our guests, every single guest on, on the podcast, the exact same question at, at the end like in most cases, I think you've already kind of, the whole conversation has been kind of an answer to it, but, but we're looking for something very pithy here. Um, so, you know, I'll focus at FAIR is, is elevating a a pro-human approach to, um, you know, the issues that, that, of, of, that we deal with every day. Um, what does pro-human mean to you and how can the average person be more pro-human?
2: I think it's, being very conscious that you are not elevating yourself above others that even and that's not to say that you don't love yourself you should love yourself you should love your heritage that's not loving yourself is not superiority it's just appreciating who you've been created to be mm-hmm. but our attention should always be on who else is a part of this experience and then doing whatever's necessary to learn that being actively engaged in finding out other people's story and how their story is important to, to all of this and then sharing it. So I'm constantly with my own children, with the school, with anyone who will listen. Um, I will often say, oh, I just found out, you know, this happened and that, that the Muslims preserved, you know, Aristotle's works or like, I, I want to be actively engaged with caring about every human being. And people may listen to me and think mm. I'm against the West or I'm against white people. And I am so not. If that's what you're getting from me, you're not reading me carefully. I'm not. If I was, I'd be saying, let's cancel the West, which I'm not saying that. And so, so on the one hand, I am acknowledging these beautiful works that came from the West that have been inspirational to all of us. But I'm also going to elevate every other human being along with my own story. And I think that's what it means to be pro-human. And, and honestly, that even transcends religion and faith. And I hope it's okay if I, if I mention Christ here a little bit. But, you know, he wasn't so pressed for everyone to follow him. He invited people to follow him, but he was very open to talking and engaging everyone and treating them like a human being, whether they followed him or not. And I really want to be like that. I feel like he was very equitable. And he didn't waste his time judging people and telling people they weren't good. In fact, he was very angry with church leaders, religious leaders who did that. And I want to be like that. I want to be the kind of person that loves white people, Black people, Asian people, Hispanic people, Native people, all people equally, and that they feel that from me. No matter who you are, what you believe, how you live, even if we disagree, that at the end of the day, you know I care about you, I care about your story, and I value you as a human being, and I want to promote that to my, anyone who follows me, listens to me, or I educate. So beautiful.
0: Dr. Annika Prather, thank you for joining us today on Fair Perspectives.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Really appreciate having you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly FAIR news and opinion pieces by members of the FAIR community, visit our substack at fairforall.substack.com. And tune into to FAIR News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash us Thanks again, and see you next time.